It's Monday, April 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Well, always a pleasure to be here, man. We've got news from Uber. Uh, we're going to explore the little things that guide our investment decisions, but we're going to start with the deal of the day. Microsoft is buying Nuance Communications, a speech recognition company, in a deal worth $16 billion. This makes it the second largest acquisition Microsoft has ever made. CEO Satya Nadella said that they're going to use Nuance's technology in Microsoft's healthcare cloud products. Uh, we'll get to the business of Nuance in a moment, but um, you know, this just seems like one of those deals where they wanted the tech, they have the money, and they went out and got it. <laughs> I think you pretty much wrapped it up there. So, next story, Chris. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course, we're going to dig into it a little bit, but I, I do feel like that that really is that really is it, kind of in a nutshell. I mean, to me. Um, Nuance has been a very in- interesting company to follow over the, over the last decade or so. It's it, because when you think of the technology, the voice recognition technology, it seemed like it was really a bit ahead of its time uh, for a while, and perhaps that's why shares really didn't do much. I mean, it, it, over the course of the last decade, really shares haven't done much at all until until fairly recently. Um, and and I think in in looking at the bigger picture here, to me. It always felt like Nuance was going to be a prime acquisition target. And then when we saw the Serence spinoff back in October of 2019, uh, remember Serence was the part of the business, the automotive part of the business. Uh, once they spun that off in 2019, to me, that really, that, that was kind of the writing on the wall there. It felt like they were getting this business in shape. To try to figure out if it could be something a part of something a little bit bigger, in uh, Microsoft has a lot of different ways they can plug this technology into their model. They can distribute it far and wide. Uh, I absolutely understand the the healthcare uh, interest there. I mean, that really is the the gist of of Nuance's business today. It's Somewhere in the neighborhood of of sixty two percent of total sales in twenty twenty was was from the from their healthcare segment. Uh, so, uh, I mean, listen, I mean, healthcare healthcare is going virtual, right? I mean, telemedicine, digital, it's it's all healthcare is one of the markets that is is becoming uh, disrupted as as technology continues to roll out. So, I I definitely see Microsoft's interest in this. It it is interesting as well that they they're paying up for it because. Uh, this this deal values it at around sixty eight times projected cash flow. Uh, that's not cheap, but we are in a period of time where it doesn't feel like much of anything is cheap, and and perhaps that was just that was just uh, dangling an offer there that they just really couldn't refuse and would be difficult for anyone else to come in and compete with. I think you're right about that, and. Nuance made seven million dollars in in the fourth quarter of 2020. Yeah. That was their profit, seven million with an M against revenue of basically 350 million. So this was, you know, as I said earlier, they wanted the tech. This was not holy cow, what a profitable business, and we can just lever that up when we bring them into the Microsoft ecosystem. Uh, it, it really did seem like. They just wanted to get this deal done, and again, they've got the cash. They do, and and I mean, when you look at the the, the companies that, that Nuance itself 
really goes up against. I mean, their healthcare segment alone competes against Optum, Amazon, Google, 3M. I mean, think about those businesses right there. I mean, Optum, of course, being a part of, of United Health. Um, I mean, those are massive, massive competitors. And then the enterprise segment, which is the other part of, of Nuance's business, I mean, they're competing against companies like Amazon, Google, smaller companies like LivePerson, which I would argue, I mean, have, I've had the opportunity to inter interview uh, LivePerson CEO and, and founder Rob Lacasio a number of times. Uh, really uh, great stuff that they're doing with that business as well. They're going up against companies like Salesforce. So it, it, it's just very easy to see. I mean, Nuance was going up against some very, very well funded, uh, strong businesses that have made a lot of progress in this space. Uh, I, I think it absolutely makes sense to have Nuance as a part of something bigger. This will give. Uh, Microsoft a chance to really exploit what is pretty good technology. Um, I, I just don't know that Nuance has, has ever really been in the position to fully uh, unlock the value there. Um, so, my says, I mean, what, $16, $16 billion? It, it's, they've got $131 billion in cash and equivalents on the balance sheet. I mean, this this is an acquisition that's going to go so under the radar. I I don't think it's going to be one of those acquisitions that they end up having to write off later down the road either. I think they'll actually be able to do some pretty productive stuff with this. Shares of Uber are up 4% this morning after the company said it posted record gross bookings in the month of March. And if you're looking for yet another data point that the world is opening back up, or certainly the United States is opening back up, Uber provides a pretty good one. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, if you look at the the numbers, I mean, Uber clearly is a business that has been suffering as of late uh, due to obvious reasons. Um, it, it, you go back to the most recent quarterly results, that would have been their fourth quarter for the end of 2020 there. Uh, monthly active platform consumers, that MAPC metric they report, down 16%. Trips down 24%. Revenue down 15%. I mean, it's a business that overall has been having some issues. Now, thank goodness for delivery, right? I mean, delivery has is, is been a, uh, a a real bright spot for a few different businesses out there, and, and Uber is no exception there. Those numbers have been tremendous, with bookings up 128% revenue in the delivery segment, up 220%. So, that's really helped this business weather the storm for its core offering and and to see that the core offering seems to be coming back around i think really encouraging they are also going to be uh spending their own version of stimulus they, they're gonna have their own little version of their own little stimulus program uh investing 250 million dollars uh, into their uh into their driving force getting drivers back on the road uh working for drivers that have already been with the company for a while working with new drivers to help them sort of see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel of working, working uh, for for the for the company as well. Um, I, I mean, this is good to see. This is good to see. It's not surprising. It's really good to see. Um, the longer term question probably still is in regard to self driving technology, right? I mean, what does that do for a business like this versus the workforce? I mean, I I think if you're an investor in Uber, you're probably thinking, well, self driving. Is is the clearest way to get this company to profitable. Um, that's probably still going to be a little while away, though. Um, the company itself thinks it can actually become profitable by the end of this year on an adjusted basis. 
I mean, Chris, can't we all really become profitable? I mean, if we just make a few adjustments, I was just going to say, I think if, we could all become profitable, right? Yeah, I can be profitable on an <laughs> sure. adjusted basis. Just, just got to make an adjustment here and there, man. They lost, and I know it was a bad year, but they lost close to seven billion dollars last yeah. year, and so yeah. it 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 is one of those things that pushes back the goalpost a little bit further for Uber in terms of, well, when are they going to be, not just adjusted profitable, legitimately profitable. Yep. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got a great note from Eric Potter. He writes, thanks for consistently making investing a pleasant part of my day. A wonderful aspect of being an individual investor is you don't have to justify your investing decisions to anyone but yourself. But should you? I asked because on a recent episode, you talked about the home-building company Lennar. I started checking them out. Financials look good. Company mission sounds great. Then I read the shareholder letter. In the first paragraph, there are two missing hyphens, three unnecessary capitalizations, and a conjunction whose presence defies logic and reason. <laughs> it makes my eyes hurt. I'm tempted to cross them off my watch list, but before I do, I just wanted to ask, what is the reason that would make you not buy a company that if you said it out loud, most people would think is ridiculous. First of all, Eric, welcome. Welcome to being an investor. <laughs> I love this question because uh, I think a lot of us have been here. I, yeah. I, I, I really think if you, you know, I don't think you need to be an investor that long to come up with a not particularly material reason to not invest in a business. Um, I know I've been there. Now, it had nothing to do with grammar, <laughs> but I've absolutely had stocks where I just I, I didn't pull the trigger on them, and I'm not going to name names, but it basically boiled down to the person running the company, and I just thought, yeah, I don't like that guy. <laughs> and, it, and, it wasn't, and it wasn't, let me be clear, Jason, it wasn't even, I think he's... Uh, terrible to his employees. I think he's crooked. I think something shady is going on. No, no, no. It was simply, God, I, th I think if I was in an elevator with that guy and it was just the two of us, that would be hell. <laughs> Again, not a great reason, but I've been there. Well, it's a great enough reason for you. And, and Eric, I generally, the older I get, the more I agree. It's like you justify your investing decisions to yourself. Really, anyone else, I mean, like, you just don't, if someone disagrees, you just, just smile politely and say, okay, that's great, and just kind of move on. It's, it's like, uh, I think I heard a while back, I think it was Keanu Reeves I heard said something like he had hit the stage of his life where he just, he doesn't have time to argue with people anymore. So, like, if someone said, if someone, came to him and said, you know what, two plus two equals five. He'd be like, okay, that's great. You have a, you have a nice day. And just kind of keep on moving. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, I can certainly understand with investing because that, at the end of the day, I mean, that really is the core of investing, right? It's, it's one big disagreement. You've got buyers and you've got sellers and both parties think they're right for whatever reason. Um, and so, we all need to Figure out our own process, what matters to us, uh, the red flags. I, I this was an interesting question to me. It was a fun question to deliberate because I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know if I mean when you come up with reasons why you might not invest in a company, but if you if you say it out loud, then it sounds it sounds absurd. 
but it doesn't sound absurd to you. And and so I, I, I mean, I feel like there are some things out there where I would say, so I, I don't know, maybe if a company has like a really cheesy mission statement, I mean, that's where I kind of feel like, all right, man, you're taking yourselves a little bit too seriously. You're thinking you're changing the world when you're kind of just doing this one thing. right? But if, if the mission statement is over the top, that at least is a sign to me to kind of look a little bit deeper into what kind of people are running the, the show. Um, another one, and, and I don't, I think that the more time goes on, I think this becomes actually a very more um, common. This this becomes more commonplace. Is if you just if you can look through the the CEO's Twitter feed, and if it just seems like just an it's just a stupid Twitter feed, like. You're asking yourself questions like, why does this person tweet this stuff? And and I know, let's go ahead and just open up the hate mail now. And this is at TMFJ most. You can just rip me for this one. But like Elon Musk, I mean, I follow him on Twitter. I mean, that's because, I mean, he's, if honestly, he's more entertaining than anything else. But like, if you go through that guy's Twitter feed, it's like, really? I mean, like, given everything that you're doing, it, it feels like maybe you don't have a lot of time. But Based on your Twitter feed, not only do you have a lot of time, you apparently have a lot of time to waste thinking about some really dumb stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I just I look at that and I think I don't know exactly where that guy's head's at. But if I'm going off just his Twitter feed, I don't know that I necessarily want to be putting my money behind him. I just opt to not to at this point, and that's fine. Everybody, you got you got to you got to make uh, your own decisions. Um, another question we would ask, and we we. Learned this one at the very beginning stages when I got here at the Fool, uh, when I was going through the analyst development program. Um, it, a, a question to ask yourself: Would I trust the CEO to babysit my kids? If you ask that question out loud, people would probably wonder what you were saying or why does that even matter. But it's kind of an interesting way to frame things. Uh, do you trust the CEO to to babysit your kids? Um, and then one final one, and, and I will say this one, and I know this probably holds a place. Uh, close to your heart as well. But when you start making up your own metrics to make it seem <laughs> clever or seem entirely specific to your business when the reality is that's not the case, I mean, that's when I just start losing patience, man. I mean, I, Groupon was a very obvious one. We had a lot of fun ripping on them for what was it, adjusted consolidated segment operating income or something like that. It was like yes. the most non gap of non gap metrics ever. And, and that was kind of like, all right, what are you guys really trying to uh, show here? And then I, I'd honestly even say that Shake Shack's same shack sales puts me a little bit on tilt too, man. When I when I read that, it's kind of like what? And then when you try to say it, I mean, try to say that three times fast. It's it's it's, what, it's, just, it's one of the reasons I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agreed. It's I just don't like it, and so for me, it's like. I don't even want to have to entertain the idea of saying it. So I, I don't know. I, I see those kinds of things, and they just make me, they make me wonder. But you know, it, it's a fun question to to think about. The uh, the metric you mentioned with Groupon. Am I remembering correctly that Groupon put that in their S one filing? Fairly certain they did. I mean, I, they may have even put it in an earnings release. But, uh, I th- but I think that was when they were filing to go public. They yeah, put that think... in there, and that was the thing where where we were all just you know at Full HQ. We were like. What is this? This well, is this is this is completely made up. And also, it's your S one. Like, what do you do? Why are you putting this in your S one? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I so let's. I mean, I'll give them a little bit of of leeway in that they were trying to frame it as that clear path towards profitability, right? I mean, with businesses that go public and typically they aren't 
profitable in this day and age. And so they were trying at least to paint that path toward profitability. Um, Had they waited five or seven years and gone public a little bit later, the market probably would have been a little bit more uh, tolerant. Of, of their poor financials, and they could have just used regular, you know, regular old uh, old accounting language to try to try to convince us of, of of the metrics that matter the most. But yeah, at the time, boy, I think we all read that. I, I'm, I'm certain we had it. We had a at least we had fun with it on at least a couple of episodes of Market Foolery. I'm sure. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for yes, being here. You got it. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may informal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.